So we're now going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 15 to 28. You may observe on the notice sheet that the sermon title is the New Testament. It may just possibly have struck you, especially if you're a literary purist, that there's no uppercase N and uppercase T in that title. Well, that is deliberate. We use the New Testament with capital letters to describe the second part of the canonical scriptures, like the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this morning, we are particularly looking at what is mentioned here in the reading, the New Testament, as a, and a particular way of looking at covenant. And although we are going to speak about more than just the New Testament, that, I hope, will be the center of our study. The writer of the letter is here continuing to explore and contrast the Old and the New Covenants. Hebrews chapter 8 is in some sense a climax to the letter as he brings out the glories of the new covenant and the blessings that belong to every Christian, every person who is in Christ in that covenant. And he's continuing now to explore the difference between that covenant and what was going on in the days of the Old Testament with reference now to the sacrifices offered and to uh, the animal sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice. Well, firstly, as we look at this passage, we need perhaps a few words of explanation. This, incidentally, is a very, very theologically rich passage. It's impossible to do justice to it in one sermon, in a series of sermons, but we'll do our best, and the Holy Spirit helping that he may bless us, each one, as we Look at it. In the first thing, first thing we need to, as we just seek to explain one or two things first, we need to see that in these words, the writer is now exploring and contrasting from not so much from the perspective of covenant as from the perspective of testament. Now, that in itself immediately sounds complicated, it's not quite as complicated as it sounds. They're very similar words, similar in their concept. A covenant is an arrangement. God makes arrangements with man. And the new arrangement, the one that would be ushered in by the coming of Christ, is what Hebrews 8 is about. A testament can be thought of as a covenant that can only come into force on the death of the one who has made that testament, called a testator. It's not unknown as a legal idea today. People talk about their last will and testament. And as it makes clear in verses 16 and 17, a testament doesn't begin to work until the person who made that particular will dies. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. In other words, this new covenant didn't come into full effect 
until the death of the testator, that is, of Christ. And from that perspective, yes, it's the New Testament. And you'll see how in this passage, sometimes the writer is speaking about the first covenant, which he calls the first testament, or it's translated as the first testament. And sometimes, as in verse 15, he speaks about the New Testament. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. So that's the first thing. Let's get clear in our minds the difference between a covenant and a testament. A testament is a covenant which only comes into force after the death of the one who arranged it. The second thing we need to explain here, uh, and it's really just following on, is that under both the First Testament, the Old Testament, and the Second, the New Testament, the death of the testator is essential for its application. Really, I'm just saying the same thing again, but we're looking at it now in a slightly different angle. In the, first, in the case of the First Testament, the testator's death is represented only symbolically, partially and symbolically, by the death of animals. So from verse 18 onwards, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats, as well as waters, wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. In Moses' day, the testator was symbolized by the animals, the bulls, the goats, the sheep, and so on. And their death symbolized by the blood that was shed. In the case of the New Testament, of course, the death of the testator is none other than the death of Christ. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions, etc. And then in verse 26, for them must, uh, last part of the verse, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then just one more thing that needs explaining, another slight complication, because it's not an easy passage, we note that even under the First Testament, the Old Covenant, the sins of those who truly believed on God and on his coming Messiah could not be atoned for by the death of animals. They could only be atoned for by the death of Christ. So there was a sense in which the New Testament, the benefit of it, comes into play also upon the lives of those under the First Covenant. And that's what he's saying in verse 15. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The writer, particularly he is addressing Jewish Christians, he is concerned to point out to them that Christ's death has atoned for the sins of past believers as well as present and future believers. Now, that by way of explanation. Secondly, 
let's just try to highlight a few distinctive features already perhaps mentioned, but let's just highlight them. We're thinking of a testament. We might think of it as a will, perhaps. The covenant is expressed in a will, in a written form, in a testament. And it's drawn up by God. And therefore, there's a bequest in it. Like any will, it bestows something on people. There's a bequest in it. And that bequest is here described as the inheritance in verse 15. They might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we have suffusing through this passage the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God to undeserving sinners like us that God is bestowing something. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have eternal life. If you knew the gift of God, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. That is God's grace to us. This testament bestows something upon us, bestows something upon guilty sinners. And that brings us secondly After the bequest, we think of the beneficiaries of the testament. And notice how they are described in this passage. Firstly, in verse 15, they are described as those who are called. That they which are called might receive the promise of of eternal inheritance. Here's a description of people who are blessed and benefited by this testament. They're called. How are they called? Well, they're called by the preaching of the gospel. They're called by the preaching of this message of Jesus Christ, who in these last days has spoken, and who by himself purged our sins with his own blood. They're called by the preaching of the gospel, and they're called by the work of the Holy Spirit, the effectual call that comes with that preaching that brings you and me into repentance and faith. They're also described, these beneficiaries in verse 14, they're described as those who are purged. The Spirit, Christ offered himself without spot to God to purge your conscience. They're described as purified, as purged, as cleansed. This is part of the blessing of the bequest. This is part of the inheritance And this is how God describes those who are recipients of the benefits of this testament. He describes us as those who have been purged. So the question that Hal Harris, the 18th century Welsh exhorter, first gave to George Whitfield, the 18th century English evangelist, when he first met him, was was absolutely right. He said, Brother, do you know that your sins are forgiven? That was the first thing he said to him. Because he was looking at somebody who was a beneficiary of the New Testament and it was a a perfectly legitimate question. Are you a beneficiary? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? That's a question that you and I need to ask ourselves. Brother, sister, do you know that your sins are forgiven? See, too, that also a bene- the beneficiaries are described in uh, 
as the many. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. It doesn't say to bear the sins of everyone. It doesn't say the sins of everyone without exception. That's the heresy of universalism, of extreme Arminianism, if you like. But it says to bear the sins of many. It doesn't say just of a few. It says of many. Christ died for the many. Yes, the Bible does have a teaching concerning the remnant, the few. But when you add up all the fews, and when you add up seasons of particular blessing or revival in the history of the church, of awakenings, which may go on for decades actually, in certain areas, it amounts to the many. Revelation chapter 7, a vast number that no one could count. They are the beneficiaries, not just for our sins also, but also for the sins of the world. We need to pray for the world, pray that God will save the world, save sinners everywhere. And then thirdly, as we think of distinctive features of this New Testament, we see that there is a bestowal of benefits. There's a bequest But this bequest is bestowed. The inheritance is bestowed. And notice how that is described in verse 15, for example. For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions. Or also in verse 22, he says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no Remission. There are various words that the Bible uses, a variety of words to describe the bestowal of the benefits, redemption, being brought back, remission, being released or having the debt cancelled, the debt of sin, the bondage of sin remitted. As it says, even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Christ dying in my place, Christ's violent death as a penal substitute for my sins, for your sins, leads to the bestowal of benefits. It leads to the remission of your sins. It leads to redemption in Christ Jesus. And then we come to the other, the final uh, distinctive feature in this part of our message. The the final feature is this. There's a boundlessness in the blessings bestowed. Notice it talks about an eternal inheritance. Why are they boundless? Because they are bestowed to us by the death of Jesus Christ. But here is a testator who when he died, the the covenant came into force, but he also ever lives because he has been raised from the dead and he is now the mediator of this New Testament. And so we have something remarkably unique about this particular testament, unlike earthly testaments, 
This testament needs no trustees to guarantee its provisions. You find that in earthly testaments and wills and so on. There are trustees who make sure that the provisions of the, the, the one who has just passed away, the provisions are carried through. But there are no trustees here because the testator, yes, he died, but he ever lives. He is the mediator of these boundless blessings. And because he lives forever, as Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he's able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. And so he bestows upon us an eternal blessing. The purging of your sins, the remission of your sins, the adoption, the sonship, the redemption will never stop being true of you. They will never cease. Nothing in life or death can stop this particular covenant coming into play in your life. This particular testament bestowing its boundless blessings upon you. They last forever and ever. So we've looked at it, tried to explain one or two points. We've highlighted some of the main features here. I now want to just, in the third place, just try and link in again this particular part of this letter into the writer's main theme. And the writer's main theme is this, that we have a great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is presenting all this that he says here in a particular context. And the context, which you may have noticed in the reading, is this. He is comparing Christ as our great high priest with the Old Testament high priest. And indeed with Moses, who at least to start with in his ministry was also a priest. Because it wasn't immediately that Aaron was appointed. And so Moses himself took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and so on. For a while, he, he summed up in himself prophetic ministry, priestly ministry, kingly ministry as he led the people. Just for a while, they were all combined in him. He is a type of Christ, of course. But we need to see that any high priest under the Old Testament, whether it's Moses or whether later in this passage it's the high priest who enters into the holy place every year, he is being compared to Christ as a great high priest. Just, let's just read again verses 24 to 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." He's tying the whole matter of the bestowal of the benefits of the New Testament into this high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he's telling us that Christ is so much better a high priest than Aaron or Moses for that short while. He's so much better. And we see some of the ways in which he brings this out. He brings out, and we find this word coming up again and again, not only in this passage, but in the whole letter, this word once. He has come once into the holy place, once in the end of the world, at the end of the ages. As it is appointed to men once to die, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unlike the Old Testament high priest, Aaron, who repeated, if we're thinking just of the Day of Atonement, there were many other sacrifices, of course, but if we're thinking just of the Day of Atonement, he just entered once a year into that holiest of all with the blood of bulls and of goats. That's the blood of others. That was, in a sense, therefore, a repeated sacrifice, but Christ once and once for all. The so-called sacrifice of the Mass is a blasphemous fable to quote the prayer book. It's a blasphemous fable which dethrones Christ and dethrones uh, and nullifies this once for all aspect of the death of Christ. And that's why he's seated at the high, highest, in the highest place at, at the right hand of God because he's finished his work. And it was one sacrifice, secondly, it was one sacrifice of himself. He was both the victim and the offering priest. Just as Aaron came with the blood of others, with the blood of animals, of bulls and of goats, so Christ came, as it were, with his own blood. It was a sacrifice of himself. That was all that was needed to put away our sins. And then the sacrifice that was repeated by Aaron and other high priests in in the times of the First Testament was in times past, he says. Hebrews 1.1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. The past, it was like that. But now we're told... In the end of the world, at the end of the ages, or in other words, in these last days, it's Christ himself who has offered himself. You see how the writer divides up history. He's not interested in political history. He's not interested in economic history. He's dividing up into redemption history. The most important division of history of all, redemption history, in those last days, sorry, in those previous times, and now at the end of the ages, with the coming of Christ. And then notice he makes a contrast between heaven itself, where Christ has entered as our great high priest into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not into some insubstantial, airy sort of place, but into heaven itself, a solid reality, which we do not see because we're not yet ready to see it, but we will see it. And we will realize that that is the substance, that is the reality. In the very presence of God, on our behalf, he contrasts that with the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. He's speaking of the tabernacle and then of the temple, 
They were holy places because God had made them so. They were made with hands, the hands of the builders or the erectors of the tabernacle or of the temple. And they were figures, they were patterns, they were visual aids, if you like, of of the, the real, of the true, of the substantial. And what he's saying is this. The old was ordained by God. It had purpose. But it was all pointing to the new, which is the substance. And then finally, we see that he compares the coming of Christ and his second coming to the ministry of the high priest on the day of the atonement. He speaks of Christ being once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he's saying, think of Jesus' appearings as being twice. The first time was with sin. In other words, to bear our sins as the atoner, as the sacrifice, as the one who fulfills the Old Testament types of the animal sacrifices. That is his first appearing. He comes with sin in that sense. But now he's offered himself once for all. That is no longer needed. So when he appears the second time, it will be without reference to sin in that atoning way. It will be for the final installment of salvation. And just as the high priest went in with the blood into the holy place and then came out, having completed the sacrifice, so Christ has gone into heaven, into the holiest of all, with himself as the sacrifice, with his blood as the sacrifice, and then he will come out of that holiest of all, come out of heaven itself in his second coming, without sin. And what he's saying is that this is dead certain. This is absolutely certain. Just as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered, and then he shall appear the second time. Just as certainly as we will die, so certainly will Jesus Christ return. Just as the people waited for the high priest's safe emergence from the tabernacle or the temple's holy of holies after he'd offered up the sacrifice on the day of atonement, a time of great trepidation, lest he should in some way offend, just as he came out of that holiest of all and they were pleased to see him safely come, so Christians eagerly expect and anticipate the coming again of Jesus Christ from heaven. There's a tremendous amount of blessed and wonderful theology in this passage. May God help us to think these things through and just realize the the wonderful blessings and benefits of this New Testament.